Would you remain standing, please, as we listen to the scripture that Brother Max Dunham has chosen for his sermon today. Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. This is the reason that I have been so hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At the present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints, for Macedonia and Arcadia has been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, indeed, they owed it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I, I think I ought to tell a story. I want, to, I want my speaker to have plenty of time, but I don't want him to have too much time. You know, well, I, I want to try to get it just right for him. Uh, when preachers get together, and a lot of us were together during a very incredibly busy and demanding week, they tell stories. And one of the stories had to do with this time of year when all the churches are having their financial campaign and they're trying to get all the cards turned in. And that's not an easy task to run down busy people scattered all over the world, get all their cards in. And the story was told about two men who got shipwrecked and managed to grab hold of a plank and to uh, survive. They drifted to a deserted island. And as soon as they arrived, they saw that it was a small island, no water, no food, no shelter, no nothing. And one of the men began to go just bonkers about it, just saying, we're going to starve to death. Nobody will ever find us. Uh, we don't have any water. We don't have any food. He was going on and on. And the other one was just beautifully calm. And finally, he said, how can you be so calm at a time like this? He said, I'm calm because I'm a millionaire. And I'm not just a millionaire by what I've accumulated. I'm a millionaire in that I make more than a million every year. And the other man said, well, fellow, what's that got to do with it? Said, here you are, maroon, your money is not worth a plug nickel. I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, well, you didn't hear the rest of it. He said, I'm a tither. He said, I follow the biblical admonition to give 10% of everything I make to the Lord's church. And I, I give a tithe. And, I, and this is, uh, we're having the budget campaign at our church. And I know they're going to find me. <laughs> now, that, that'll give you a lot of peace. You see what I'm talking about? It's, it's wonderful to it, and you're important. Now, after that story, I want to present our illustrious guest. He needs no introduction to this congregation. He's preached for us before. You know, he, he's a native of Mississippi. 
and he served great churches from California to Memphis, Tennessee, his latest church, the Christ United Methodist Church in Memphis. You know that he also was for many years the editor of the Upper Room, which tells you about the depth of his spirituality, his commitment to prayer, and to the devotional life. You know that he and I have stood shoulder to shoulder in renewal movements in this United Methodist Church for many, many years. He and Jerry are two of the closest friends that Gene and I have. We're extremely close and extremely proud to claim that friendship. You know that in recent years, he has chosen to lead the seminary at Asbury Theological Seminary, where he serves today as president of that seminary. It was the height of my ambition when I got elected to that board, and after all these years, for the first time, I get to vote on Maxie Dunham's salary. <laughs> I got this guy right where I want him. Seriously, you have to ask the question. In mainline seminaries now that are so wonderfully supported and they ought to be, you can go to many mainline seminaries and not pay a dime of tuition or fees or anything. If you go all the way to Wilmore, Kentucky, to Asbury, you're going to have to pay $14,000 a year to be a seminary student there. And we ought to do something about that. We ought to change that with a Texas Foundation Fund. Right now, it costs them $14,000. They all go into debt. How is it that you can go so many places free and hundreds upon hundreds are going to Asbury and paying $14,000 a year? Much of that can be traced to the man who sits at the top, the president of that seminary. My friend, my brother in Christ, I'm proud to present him to you this morning, Dr. Maxie Dunham. Maxie? Thank you, Bill. It is a great joy to be with you here. I bring you greetings not only from the folks in the World Methodist Council who have had a great time here this week, but from the community at Asbury Theological Seminary, where we do educate more ministers for the United Methodist Church and the Wesleyan movement around the world than any other seminary in the world. And I bring you greetings from that student body there who are upholding us today in prayer and who uh, offer great hope, who offer great hope for the Christian cause uh, around the world. Uh, Bill is a friend. Uh, I wish he'd express that more when he sets my salary. Uh, and he does give a gracious introduction. I had an introduction not long ago. Uh, this fellow was introducing me, and he said, uh, Maxie Dunham has written over 25 books one of which is worth mentioning today. <laughs> so you get, you get all sorts of introductions. I, I'm glad, I'm glad to be in this church. I, I was out at West Chase early today. I saw that dynamic vision that's coming to reality there. I'm here now and I know how dynamic this downtown congregation is and how revitalization is taking place here as you reach out to this community and as this community has begun to grow again. I don't know another church in the whole connection that is dreaming bolder dreams and are making the kinds of commitments that enable those dreams to come to reality than First United Methodist Church in Houston. So you're to be commended for all you're doing. Uh, 
couple of winters ago, we were snowed in in Wilmore. That's where Asbury Theological Seminary is. Uh, my predecessor says Wilmore is not at the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> we were snowed in. It was Saturday morning. I had finished my devotional reading and my morning prayer time. And not wanting my day to be stolen by television, I decided I would select a book and read. So on a shelf in our den where I keep books that I've not yet read, I began to look and I came across a title that grabbed my attention. It was Laughter in Heaven. That's a pretty good title. It was written by Henry C. Wheatley. I didn't know who he was, but I pulled the book down from the shelf and began to read and discovered that Mr. Wheatley was a Scott Presbyterian minister, one-time minister of the great St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, and this was a kind of autobiography of his ministry. I began to read, and in the introduction, he really grabbed my attention by telling the story of the shortest sermon he had ever heard. It lasted only 45 seconds. Now, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> the old man who preached it was way on in years. He was stooped in stature. His hair was snow white. His face was heavily, heavily wrinkled, but it was strong and at the same time tender. The church in which the sermon was preached was rather dilapidated, reflecting the condition of the community in which it was set, one of the worst slums of Edinburgh. The service went on in an ordinary kind of way, and uh, then it came time for the sermon. The old man mounted the pulpit, looked out on that unenthusiastic congregation, and he was silent, silent for what seemed like a, a long, long time. And then he said, I have no sermon today. Nothing would come. I've been so busy about so many things. And his voice began to break and tears began to flow down his face. He said, I'm so ashamed. I don't know what I believe except Jesus lives. And he couldn't speak anymore. Finally, he gained his composure, was able to pronounce a blessing and left the pulpit. Bless that old man. He had nothing to be ashamed of. I've been there. Every preacher who is honest has been there when nothing would come. When we've been so busy about so many things that we haven't been able to give our attention to that primary thing, that is preaching the Word of God. I've been there when I've had my doubts. I've been there when I have raised my questions. But I want you to know I'm not there now. I'm not, I still have questions. But I have never been more confident. I have never been more confident. And that about which I am most confident is Jesus is alive. Thus my text, this 29th verse of the 15th chapter of Romans. When I come to you, when I come to you, I will come in the full measure 
of the blessing of Christ. One translation has it, when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Get that setting in mind. Paul longed to go to Rome. Not being able to go there, he wrote them this letter. The letter that has become the most important book in the Bible, apart from the Gospels. It was Luther's study of the book of Romans that led to the Protestant Reformation. Someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans in a prayer meeting on Aldersgate Street when Wesley wandered in and had that heartwarming experience that started the Methodist movement. It's one of the pivotal books of all the ages of the Christian faith. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Not being able to go there, he, he had written this brilliant, brilliant apologetic for the Christian faith. The most convincing argument for the Christian faith that is in print anywhere. And coming to the close of that, he wanted to express the heartbeat of his life, that which determined every step he took, every decision he made. So he said, when I come to you, when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was a person of one book. He was also a person of one subject. He said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he wrote his one sentence autobiography in uh, the second chapter of Galatians, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. He was a person of one subject. So having finished that argument, that apologetic for the Christian faith, he sounds that one subject again, the heart of the gospel. And may, parenthetically, I sound a warning. That's the gospel that is being challenged in our day by those that would denigrate the authority of Scripture, by those who would diminish the centrality of Christ, the uniqueness of his incarnation, his life, his teaching, his death and resurrection, by those preachers who would turn their preaching into a profession rather than maintaining that vocation of a passion that burns in their belly, by those preachers and those Christians who have lost their passion for, for saving lost men and women, by leaders of the church who would preserve the institution even if it costs ministry and mission. That's the gospel that's being threatened in our day. So Paul comes to say to us, when I come to you, when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that gospel? What is that blessing that Paul would take to the Romans? First, Jesus comes to free us. I come to you. I come to you in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ who comes to free us. There are all sorts of images in Scripture for that freedom that Christ brings. One of the most dramatic is in Colossians 1.13 where Paul says, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his 
dear son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Christ comes to free us. In some sections of Africa, the African word for redemption is translated into English in this phrase, God took our heads out. Now that's a rather clumsy expression until you know the setting out of which it comes. The slave trade of the 18th century. White men invaded African villages and took off men, women, and children to be sold into slavery. They would put an iron collar around the neck of one of these persons and attached to that iron collar would be a chain which would be attached to the collar around the neck of another and a chain on that attached to an iron collar around the neck of another until there was literally a human chain being marched to the seacoast to be sold into slavery. Along the way, a loved one, a friend, a family member would recognize one of these persons and would pay a ransom in order that the iron band would be removed. Thus the expression for redemption, God took our heads out. Here it is in a person, a graduate from our seminary last year. She preached at our uh, uh, senior service at the end of the year and she told her story. After graduation from college, she was on a very fast corporate track going rapidly to the top. As she was on that track, she also got on a fast life track, which ended in addiction to alcohol and drugs. She awoke in a hospital one day, having been there for eight days in a coma. A sensitive, passionate, compassionate minister found her there, began to share the love of Christ with her, and a dramatic thing took place. Christ claimed her. She responded to Christ. Three months in a recovery community operated by Christian people, then back into a church that provided the nurture for her to grow in her faith and in her discipleship, then another miracle. She heard God call her into ministry. She told her story dramatically, a story that I just outlined somewhat superficially. And when she had finished telling that compelling story, she looked at us and she said, you sing it so rotely. When I sing it, it comes from the depths of my soul. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I come to you. I come to you in the full measure of the blessing of Jesus Christ. He comes to free us. I can't even begin to imagine the bondage in which some of you are. I can't even begin to imagine all the problems that are residual in this sanctuary this morning. All sorts of problems, all sorts of issues with which we are wrestling. None of them, none of them beyond the power of Jesus Christ to free us. I come to you. I come to you in the full measure of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ who comes to free us, but also who comes to fit us, who comes to fit us for kingdom living. Have you ever noticed the difference between what's going on in the seventh chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans and the beginning of the eighth chapter? 
you'll become aware of it when I remind you. In the seventh chapter, Paul, in, in dramatic, colorful words, expresses the, the civil war that's raging inside him. He says that he's a slave to sin, and he expresses that in this way, for the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. And then he literally cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he asks that anguishing question, Who will deliver me from this body doomed to death? That's the close of the seventh chapter. The first verse of the eighth chapter is, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a vast chasm. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? There is therefore now no condemnation. What a vast chasm. How do we leap over that chasm? We don't. We can't. Some preacher may say to you or some lay friend, just give your sins to Jesus. Friends, we can't give our sins to Jesus. If we could give our sins to Jesus, we'd do that, and we would all be saints. We can't give our sins to Jesus. We give ourselves to Jesus, and Jesus takes our sins. To the degree, to the degree that we will yield ourselves to him, to that degree, he takes our sins from us, and he fits us for kingdom living. Listen, friends. Holiness is not an option for God's people. God has said, be holy as I am holy. I heard a story recently about a fellow who, who was worn out all the time. He could hardly make it through his day's work. By about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he'd be completely worn down, exhausted. So he went to a doctor, a doctor friend, a fellow who knew him. And he said, Doc, I'm, I'm just tired and weary all the time. I don't know what's happening to me. Uh, you've got to do something for me. I simply can't make it through the day. I get exhausted by 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What's the best thing I can do? Knowing that fellow's fast-paced lifestyle, the doctor said to him, What's the best thing you can do? You can go home from work every day, eat a nutritious meal, get a good night's sleep and quit running around and carousing all night. The fellow said, well, what's the next best thing I can do? <laughs> we, we want to do the next best thing because we're not willing to yield ourselves to Christ who will fit us for kingdom living. Again, there is no option for God's people as it relates to holiness. God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And God is not going to bless a church that flirts with apostasy. God is not going to bless a church that's not clear in its moral compass. God is not going to bless a church that does not pronounce to the world that our God is a holy God and calls us to holy living. There ought to be something distinctive about us Christians. Something that sets us apart. 
something that is recognizable by the world in the way we do business, in the way we invest our money, in the way we treat our spouses, in the way we rear our children, in the way we relate to the poor and the marginalized. There ought to be something distinctive about us. That distinctive is given when we yield ourselves to Christ and he fits us for kingdom living. I come to you. I come to you in the full measure of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ who comes to free us, who comes to fit us for kingdom living, and who comes to fill us, who comes to fill us with his presence and his power, giving us that power and that presence of the Holy Spirit which enables us to be and do all those things God requires us to be and do. What did Jesus say after his resurrection and prior to his ascension? He said, when I go to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit. And what would the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit would give us power. I have time only to illustrate that. One of the great joys of being a part of the World Methodist Council and World Evangelism of the Council and uh, uh, traveling with Christians from around the world is that we have the opportunity to, to some degree to have our fingers on the pulse beat of the church around the world. But more important than that, we, we have the opportunity of meeting people who are unashamed of the Christian gospel and who are living the Christian gospel in a sacrificial kind of way that puts our mediocre discipleship to shame. One of those is Stanley Mahoba. For some time, in fact, until two years ago, he was the presiding bishop of the Methodist Church in South Africa. When Stanley was a young man, he was, a, he was associated with a student movement that was seeking to witness against and protest against the system of apartheid. Uh, he was committed to nonviolence. He met with a group of students one day seeking to divert them from a violent expression in the community. And as a result of that was arrested and sentenced to the notorious Robin Island, the prison there, for six years. It was there that he met Nelson Mandela, who spent nearly 30 years there, and they became friends. When he first went into prison, someone slipped a, a religious track beneath his cell door. Friends, uh, don't look down your nose at people who hand out tracks on street corners or in airports or bus stations or train stations. Uh, don't sneer at people who try to make their witness in ways that, that you think are rather unsophisticated. And for God's sake, for God's sake, Never cease to make your witness however you can make it. Who knows what's going to result from that witness? Stanley read this religious tract, and it inspired him to start reading the Bible. And as a result of reading the Bible, he was converted. But not only that, he wrote a book entitled Convicted by Hope, in which he told the story of his imprisonment and his conversion and call to ministry. Uh, they'd taken his Bible away. They'd put him in isolation. But he remembered a story from the Bible about the rich young ruler 
and Jesus coming to him and telling him to go sell everything that he had, give it to the poor and come follow him. Stanley said, I didn't have anything to sell. I didn't have anything to give away. But that word, come follow me, got hold of my mind and my heart. And he described what happened by using one of Charles Wesley's hymns. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke my prison filled with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then he gave this testimony. He said, I lived with just khaki shorts. I slept on a straw mat in a cold, cold cell on a damp floor. I had little to eat and was often tortured. Then he said this, an extraordinary power was given me. And I decided not only would I be a follower of Jesus Christ, I would preach his gospel whenever I could. Talk about being filled. Not only converted in prison, but called and responding to the preaching ministry in prison. Stanley Mahoba, Bill Henson, Ira Galloway, Bill Quick, any of these could preach this sermon with far greater power than I have preached it. But none, none could preach it with more passion and conviction. I come to you. I come to you in the full measure of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes to free us. He comes to fit us for kingdom living. He comes to fill us with his presence and his power. I don't want to miss any of that. And I don't want you to miss any of that. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Dunham. You have uh, presented the gospel in all its fullness, its richness, and in a com very compelling way. Whenever the gospel is preached, we need an opportunity to, to respond. The Spirit of Christ makes its claim, makes his claim on our lives. And I don't know what your response needs to be, but I want to give you the freedom to make a response. Perhaps you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. This morning, I encourage you to do that. Perhaps you've already accepted Christ, you're a baptized Christian, but you want to move your membership here to our church and work out your salvation in this place that, that preaches the centrality of Jesus Christ. We invite you to come and join us in our mission and in our ministry. Or perhaps you're you know you aren't the Christian that you should be, and you'd like to come and kneel at this altar for a time of rededication. Whatever the need in your life, we invite you to come forward as we stand for our closing hymn, I Love to Tell the Story. You've heard the story, let's sing about it, and let's respond. Will you stand as we sing? Mm -hmm. 